Hello, and welcome to The Face of Bible John, a true crime podcast investigating a series of unsolved murders in the city of Glasgow, Scotland, from 1968 to 1969. I'm your host, Louise McGregor. Please note that this podcast will contain descriptions of physical and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Eighteen months after the murder of Patricia Docker, another young mother set out for a night of dancing at the Barrowland Ballroom. Jemima MacDonald was 32 years old, slim, attractive, and, just like Patricia, she loved to dance. Jemima, who friends called Mima, had three children, a 12-year-old daughter and sons of nine and seven. Mima lived in a flat in a tenement building at 15 McKeith Street in Bridgeton, to the east of the city centre and less than one mile from the Barrowland Ballroom. On the same landing in the tenement, her sister Margaret also had a flat, and on Saturday, August 6th, 1969, Margaret agreed to look after Mima's children while she went dancing. This was the third night in a row that Mima had gone out. Margaret had also looked after the children on the previous Thursday and Friday nights. Mima gave her children their evening meal and then dropped them off with Margaret. She was excited to be going out and she chatted with her sister before leaving for the city centre. She was wearing a black pinafore dress, white blouse, off-white slingback shoes and a warm brown coat. Mima had recently had her hair dyed and styled and it was still in curlers when she dropped off her children. She covered the curlers with a headscarf and told her sister that she didn't plan to take them out until she arrived at the ballroom so that her hair would look as good as possible. Mima went to the ballroom alone. The problem, she told Margaret, was that many of her friends were married and no longer wanted to go out for a night of dancing, especially at the Barrowland Ballroom on one of their notorious over-25s nights, so she often went out by herself. Before going to the ballroom, Mima stopped in at Betty's Bar on the Gallow Gate, just 100 metres from the ballroom. At the time, the Barrowland Ballroom didn't serve alcohol and many patrons would call to local bars first. Some patrons in Betty's bar remembered her talking with a tall, slim, red-haired young man in a suit. When she arrived at the ballroom, it was thronged with dancers. Saturday night was the busiest night of the week, and anything up to 2,000 people were believed to have visited the Barrowland Ballroom on that particular evening. Despite the crowds, several people later recalled seeing Mima there, and some remembered her being with one man in particular, He stood out, they said, because he didn't seem to belong. He had unfashionably short hair for the time, and he was wearing a good quality suit with a white shirt. These things contrasted with most young men at the ballroom that evening, who sported longer hair and more casual dress. From the descriptions, this seemed likely to be the same man whom Mima had been seen talking with earlier at Betty's bar, but no one knew his name or could remember seeing him at the ballroom before. When the ballroom closed at midnight, Mima was seen leaving with the young man. It appeared that they planned to go back to Mima's flat, and several witnesses saw them as they walked together. They were seen to walk a short distance down Gallowgate, before turning right onto Bain Street, and then left onto the busy London Road, which itself leads onto the A74, one of the main routes to the east of Glasgow. They were seen together on London Road at about 12.15am, and again at around 12.30am, as they walked east along London Road before turning off onto a shortcut along Landressy Street. It was assumed that they then crossed James Street and entered McKeith Street where Mima's flat was located. The distance from the Barrowland Ballroom to Mima's flat is less than one mile and the walk should have taken the couple around 20 minutes. But Mima never came home.
When Maima didn't arrive to collect her children on Sunday morning, and no one answered knocking on her flat door, Margaret became concerned. Later on that Sunday, she became even more concerned when she heard some local children talking about the body in the tenement. Less than 30 metres from the tenement in which Margaret and Maima lived was a dilapidated and abandoned tenement building at 23 McKeith Street. The council had boarded up the ground floor windows and secured the door, but some of the boarding had been broken away and, during the day, the empty building was used as an impromptu playground by local children. At night, it provided shelter for vagrants and a place for sex workers to take their customers. By Monday, Margaret was very worried indeed about Mima, and she recalled what she had heard the children saying. She plucked up courage and went towards the dark and evil-smelling empty tenement building. She was surprised to find several local people inside and outside the empty building. It seemed that other people had also heard the rumours that there was a body in there. Margaret made her way inside. At first, she couldn't see anything in the semi-darkness. Then, someone pointed out what at first appeared to be a mannequin from a shop window display lying in a bed recess by one wall. Then, Margaret noticed that the mannequin was wearing a torn black pinafore dress and a white blouse, and that his face was covered in blood. Mima McDonald wasn't missing anymore. Detectives arrived quickly, and it was ascertained that Mima had been beat around the head and face before being raped and then strangled with one of her own stockings. Her black patent leather handbag and her headscarf were missing, though all her other clothes were found at the crime scene. A search by local police of waste ground close to the derelict tenement failed to turn up the missing items. Local people had arrived at the empty tenement before the police, and at least one had moved the body in an attempt to identify the dead woman, compromising the crime scene. An autopsy confirmed the cause of death and noted that Mima had died in the early hours of Sunday morning. It also added the fact that Mima had been menstruating at the time of her death and that a sanitary pad was found discarded close to her body. Extensive door-to-door inquiries in the area produced little helpful new information. One woman who lived in McKeith Street told police that she thought that she had heard a woman scream on that night, but she couldn't be sure of the time. One witness claimed to have seen a woman who resembled Mima talking to a man outside the abandoned tenement at around 12.40am, but it could not be definitively ascertained that this was Mima. Because it was known from the outset that Mima had spent the evening at the Barrel and Ballroom, police immediately began questioning other people who had been there. Starting from Monday, August the 18th, the management of the ballroom began making announcements requesting anyone who had been there on Saturday night to contact the police. The following Saturday, August 23rd, police staged a reenactment of Mima's walk towards her home from the ballroom using a policewoman dressed in similar clothes. This produced no new witnesses who had seen the couple as they walked from the ballroom towards McKeith Street. The similarities between the still-unsolved murder of Patricia Docker the year before and the murder of Mima MacDonald were obvious. Both were murdered after spending the evening at an over-25s night at the Barrel and Ballroom. Both were beaten and strangled, both had been menstruating at the time of death, and in both cases, the dead women's handbags were removed from the scene. Newspapers quickly picked up on this and began asking police whether the murders were connected. The police were cautious. On 21st of August, a senior detective from Glasgow City Police told a reporter that there are one or two similarities between both murders. I cannot say more on that point at the moment. That was as far as the police would go in connecting the two killings. Police inquiries had provided a good description of the man who Mime had spent the evening with from several witnesses. 
He was said to be between 25 and 35 years of age, with sandy or red hair, though some witnesses recalled his hair as being auburn or even dark. He was slim, pale-faced, smartly dressed and very tall. Some witnesses remembered him as being over six feet. No one recognised the man, though several said that they were confident that they could pick him out if they saw him again. Despite the description, more than a week passed and the police had no viable suspects for Mima's murder. Detective Chief Superintendent Tom Goodall, dubbed Glasgow's Maigre after the brilliant fictional Belgian detective by the press, decided to try something different. He approached George Lennox Patterson, Deputy Director at the prestigious Glasgow School of Art. Lennox Patterson was mainly known as an illustrator, but he was also an accomplished portrait painter and Goodall asked him if he would be willing to create a painting of the man seen with Mima MacDonald at the Barrel and Ballroom. The portrait was to be based on a composite of witness descriptions of the man. It would be the first time in the history of Scottish criminal investigation that such a thing had been done, and Goodall had to approach the Crown Office in Edinburgh for permission. When this was granted, he contacted Lennox Patterson, who rapidly produced the portrait. This was released to the press on Tuesday, August the 26th, ten days after Mima's murder. The publication of what was said to be the face of Mima's killer caused a sensation. The talent of Lennox Patterson produced not just a likeness, but a portrait of a man wearing an expression of cold malevolence. To most people, it seemed that with such a clear image of the man's face in circulation, it was no more than a matter of time before the killer was apprehended. Unfortunately, the initial interest caused by the publication of the portrait produced no new leads and no suspects. Police inquiries continued, but with little tangible evidence to go on, they made no progress. Mima MacDonald's three brothers and three sisters together raised £100, a considerable sum in 1969, which they offered as a reward to anyone who could help to identify her killer. Even this failed to generate any new leads. Mima MacDonald appeared to have been the second victim to die after spending an evening at the Barrowland Ballroom. When the portrait of the killer failed to reveal any new suspects, police began to refocus their attention on the ballroom itself. Plainclothes officers mingled with the crowds and passing uniformed officers kept a wary eye on people entering and leaving the dance hall. The Barras, where the Barrel and Ballroom was and still is situated, to the east of the city centre in Glasgow, is a special place. During the Victorian period, changes in farming practice and a reducing need for farm labourers brought an influx of people to the cities of Scotland, both from the Highlands and from Ireland. The city of Glasgow was no exception, and the vast majority of the incomers seeking a new life in the city were cripplingly poor. At that time, there was no open-air market in Glasgow where those with little money could make a few pennies by selling second-hand goods to those even poorer than themselves. In the mid-1800s, an impromptu market began to develop in the Bridgegate area of the city, where there were already several rag and bone merchants. The new traders arrived with handcarts from which they sold their wares. These carts were known in the local vernacular as barras, barrows, and the area where they congregated quickly became known as the Barrowlands, or simply barras. Initially, the barras market was mainly used for the sale of second-hand clothes, gathered by hawkers from the more affluent areas of the city. Later, it expanded into a flea market and a place where stolen goods were openly bought and sold. By the beginning of the 20th century, it had become the largest open-air market in Europe. At around that time, an astute Glaswegian woman named Maggie McIver realised the commercial potential in the area and she and her husband began to buy up property and to lease out sales, pitches and barrows. The McIvers also began to formalise the market by placing some stalls within a covered area. 
1931, the market was completely enclosed and Maggie, by this time known to one and all as the Barra's Queen, decided to have a ballroom built on the first floor above the market stalls, partly to ensure that Maggie would have a place to hold her annual Christmas dance, but also because she recognised the business potential in a ballroom. The dance hall was opened in 1934 as the Barrowland Ballroom and, with resident band Billy McGregor and the Gay Birds, it became one of the most popular dance venues in Glasgow. By the time that American servicemen arrived during World War II, bringing with them such new dances as the Jitterbug and the Jive, weekend queues regularly reached around the block. Then, in June 1958, Maggie McIver, who was by this time a millionaire, died, and just three months later, the market and dance hall she had created were destroyed in a fire. Maggie's family rebuilt the dance hall and the new Barrowland Ballroom was opened on Christmas Eve 1960. The new dance floor was a wonder, made from thousands of pieces of specially imported Canadian maple laid in a crisscross pattern. It was given extra spring by being laid over thousands of tennis balls, each cut in half. The timing for the opening of the new venue was immaculate. By the late 1950s, dance halls were the UK's second most popular form of entertainment after the cinema with over 200 million customers each year, at a time when the combined attendance at football matches across the whole of the UK was less than 80 million. A newspaper survey at the time suggested that as many as 70% of all married couples in the UK had first met at a dance hall. In Glasgow, dance halls were even more popular than in other parts of the UK. By 1960, the city had 14 permanent dance halls and the Locarno, the Majestic and the Plaza were some of the largest and most luxurious in the whole country. However, just when it seemed that dance halls were here to stay, suddenly they began to decline. Some people blamed the introduction of television which was persuading people to spend evenings in their own homes. Others suggested that increasing mixing of the sexes in the workplace and other social settings meant that dance halls were no longer necessary as a place to meet potential boy or girlfriends. Whatever the reason, by the end of the 1960s, very few dance halls were still in business. A few had transformed themselves into more trendy discos, and some had become bingo halls, but the majority just closed down. One of the few that survived in Glasgow was the Barrel and Ballroom. The over-25 nights on Thursday and Saturday evenings were especially popular. It didn't escape the attention of the police that both women who had been murdered appeared to have been picked up during an over-25s night at the Barrel and Ballroom. Ten weeks passed with no new leads. And then, the killer struck again. Twenty-nine-year-old Helen Puttock also loved dancing, but just like Patricia Docker and Jemima MacDonald, the presence of her young children made it difficult for her to get out as often as she'd like. Helen had met her husband George while visiting her brother in Surrey, and the couple had two sons, one of five and the other just one year old. George was a serviceman, and Helen had initially followed him on his postings, including a long period in Germany. However, she hadn't enjoyed army life, finding herself lonely and isolated, and by 1969 she returned to Glasgow to live with her mother and her two children at 129 Earl Street in the Scotson area of the city, to the west of the city centre. George decided that he would apply for a posting closer to Glasgow, but, in the meantime, Helen and George kept in touch only by letter, and George spent any leave he had in Glasgow with his wife and children. He was home on leave on Thursday, October 30th, 1969, when Helen announced that she planned going dancing that evening with her older sister, Jeannie Langford. Initially, George wasn't too happy with this arrangement, telling Helen that he wasn't sure it was appropriate for a married woman to go out dancing without her husband, but Helen reassured him that she simply wanted the chance to have a bit of a dance with her sister. He finally agreed, 
and gave her 10 shillings in order to take a taxi back home afterwards. At around 8 that evening, Helen and Jeannie left to catch a bus towards Glasgow Cross. Helen was wearing a black sleeveless dress, black shoes, a fake fur ocelot coat and carrying a red handbag. She seemed very happy to be going out and assured George that she'd be back in reasonable time. When they arrived in the city centre, Helen and Jeannie visited a few pubs before meeting up with two friends, Marion Cadder and Jean O'Donnell, at the Trader's Tavern on Stevenson Street, just 50 metres from the Barrowland Ballroom. Then, the sisters joined the queue for the over 25 night in the ballroom. As usual for a Thursday night, the queue was long. Once they had paid the four shilling admission fee and gone inside at around 10 o'clock, it didn't take long for Jeannie to meet a man who seemed keen on being her dancing companion for the evening. He told her that his name was John and that he lived in the Castle Milk area of the city, but she noticed that he didn't offer any other information about himself. She wondered if this might have been because he was married? She didn't really mind, because all she wanted to do was dance, and she had noticed that Helen also seemed to have found a companion, a tall, slim young man who seemed suave and a little sophisticated. The two women happily danced with their partners, meeting for a chat now and then. Jeannie noted that Helen's partner wasn't much of a dancer. The two men they were dancing with also met, and the women laughed when it turned out that both were called John, though Jeannie later said she didn't think that was either man's real name. She later commented, I don't believe either of them were called John. In fact, the man I was dancing with was first to introduce himself to the others. When it came to Helen's partner, he seemed to pause for a second or two before giving his name as John. He seemed a bit apprehensive, and it was the only time I saw him look less than confident, because he seemed so certain of himself in every other way. At around 11.30, the dancing finally ended, and the two couples made their way towards the exit. Jeannie stopped to buy cigarettes at a machine in the upper foyer, but when she inserted her two shillings, nothing happened. Helen's partner became irritated by this and insisted on calling the manager and demanded that he give Jeannie her money back. Jeannie described the so-called John's attitude later. He wasn't outraged or shouting. He was collected and very calm, but very assertive. It was like a school teacher speaking to a young child. He was giving the manager a very real dressing down. I expected him to get a good hiding for the way he spoke to the manager, but to my surprise, nothing happened and the manager seemed to back off. The manager agreed that the machine seemed to be faulty, but explained that he couldn't give Jeannie a refund as all the tills had been cashed up for the night. However, he told her that if she returned the following day, he would see that she got her money back. As the four made their way downstairs, Helen's John seemed to become quite angry and Jeannie heard him say, My father says these places are dens of iniquity. Jeannie's John went to get his coat and, while they waited for him, Jeannie noted that Helen and her John were in conversation and she thought that John had said something to Helen which she didn't believe because she was laughing and shaking her head. Then, the man produced something from a jacket pocket, perhaps a card or some form of identification, and showed it to Helen. Jeannie tried to see what it was, but the man quickly put it back in his pocket saying, you know what happens to nosy folk. The four left the ballroom and began to walk together along Gallowgate towards Glasgow Cross where taxis waited. When they arrived, Jeannie's John continued walking towards the city centre, telling them that he intended to catch the late bus towards Castle Milk from George Square. Helen, Jeannie and her John got into a taxi and began the 20-minute trip back to Scotston. Helen noted that John's attitude seemed to have changed. He was plainly irritated that Jeannie had accompanied him and Helen in the taxi and Jeannie assumed that he had hoped to be alone with her younger sister. Jeannie tried to engage him in conversation by asking questions about him. He said little beyond noting that he liked golf and that his family owns a caravan in Irvine, southwest of Glasgow, on the Firth of Clyde coast. He also mentioned that he had been fostered as a young child. 
When Jeannie asked if he liked dancing, his answers became rather odd. He told her that he didn't like the idea of married women going to ballrooms, and he spoke of his dislike of adulterous women. When Jeannie asked him what he had planned for the new year, he answered that he didn't drink, but preferred to send his time in prayer instead. When the taxi arrived at Earl Street, Jeannie expected John and Helen to get out before it took her to her home on Kelso Street, around one and a half miles further on. Instead, John insisted that the taxi went first to Kelso Street, where Jeannie got out, telling Helen that she would see her the following week, but John slammed the taxi door closed while she was speaking and told the driver to take them onto Earl Street. The driver later told police that he stopped outside 95 Earl Street, Helen's home was at 129 Earl Street, where Helen got out and walked in the direction of her home. She seemed, the driver said, angry, and walked away without looking back. The male passenger paid the fare, got out, and followed Helen down the street. The time was around 12.30am to 12.45am. At around 2am, a number 6 night service bus was travelling towards the city centre on Dumbarton Road when it stopped between Gardner Street and Fortrose Street to pick up a single male passenger. The driver, conductor and another passenger noted that the man looked as if he had been in a fight. His jacket was muddy and he had a scratch below one eye. The man seemed embarrassed by his appearance and a short time later, at the junction of Dumbarton Road and Derby Street, he stopped the bus and got off. At 7.30 the following morning, Archibald McIntyre, who lived at 95 Earl Street, took his dog out into the enclosed yard behind the tenement buildings. Immediately, the dog began sniffing at what McIntyre initially thought was a bundle of rags lying on the ground. He went closer and saw that it was the body of a woman, her face covered in blood. He raced to the nearest telephone box and called the police. When they arrived, they found the body of a woman her face so badly beaten as to be unrecognisable and with a pair of stockings tightly knotted around her neck. Her clothes were torn and a gold chain she had been wearing was lying next to her. It was clear that this was murder and a Glasgow City Police incident caravan was set up outside the door of 95 Earl Street. During the morning, a man arrived at the incident caravan saying that he was worried about his wife Helen who had gone dancing the night before at the Barrowlands Ballroom but hadn't returned. Detective Superintendent Joe Beatty, the man assigned to lead the murder inquiry, took him inside the caravan. The man explained that he was George Puttock and said that he was worried about Helen. Beatty asked George what his wife had been wearing when she had gone out. George described Helen's clothes to the detective and Beatty put his hand on George Puttock's shoulder and said, I'm sorry son, your wife's been murdered. You just listened to episode two of The Face of Bible John. Hosted, recorded, and produced by Louise McGregor. Co-written by Louise McGregor and Steve McGregor. Based on the book, The Face of Bible John, The Search for a Scottish Serial Killer by Steve McGregor. Thank you for listening.